You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in to me today. We have an entire universe of organisms living within our bodies. The microbiome truly is having a moment of importance right now. Now, it can get into a bit of a freaky feeling when we realize just how many microbes are living in and on our bodies. We have trillions, with the T, trillions of microbes that are existing on our human organism, and in particular, in our gut. Right now, there's a revolution taking place in understanding just how much our microbiome is affecting our health outcomes. Right now, we have solid data affirming how our microbiome influences our cardiovascular health, our brain health, our mood, our metabolism, and so much more. We're just scratching the surface in our understanding. And we're gonna be talking about that today. But more importantly and more tangibly, we're gonna be looking at the things that we know for certain and how our diet is influencing our microbiome. And we have somebody who lives and breathes this subject matter. Her lab, her world-class facility is dedicated to studying how food is impacting what's happening with our microbes. And again, this association is so important between our microbes and our health outcomes. In particular, she's gonna touch on the fact that our microbiome is right there directly in close contact to our immune system, which our immune system, the majority of our immune cells are located right there along our gut lining as well. It's front line, front and center for good reason. Throughout our evolution, we need our immune system to be right there on top of everything in case we have an intrusion coming in via something that we're eating. And this connection between what we're putting in our bodies and our health outcomes, this is something that seems very obvious on the surface, but in our society today, we've kind of fallen asleep to this. We've been asleep at the wheel, driving our human bodies around, and we've been putting in all of this abnormal stuff and wondering why we're seeing these epidemics of gut-related issues, gastrointestinal diseases. And we've seen this huge spike in recent years in deaths related to digestive issues, and also this huge increase in autoimmune conditions that are largely being triggered by this association with our gut and the rest of our system. And so today we're gonna to be breaking down how this association with these newly invented foods and also looking at what are some of the time-tested proven foods that we should be including to have a healthy protective microbiome because that's one of the big takeaways as well is that this is a protective barrier from our bodies and the rest of the external world to be able to be front and center to decide who's friend or foe our microbes have a lot to say about this. Now, what if we have microbes that are in the endangered species list because of the way that we're treating them or even going extinct? So again, we're gonna talk about all that today. Now, just like our human cells, our bacteria cells need key things from our food in order to run processes. And whether it's amino acids or whether it's key electrolytes and micronutrients, our bacteria require these, again, to run processes and to thrive as well. So we wanna make sure that we're providing our bodies with the building blocks in order to do all the cool stuff that it can do to provide great health and well-being. 
Now, one of the most essential electrolytes for our gut health and also even for our brain health, helping to maintain proper fluid balance throughout our bodies, again, including through our gastrointestinal tract, sodium is critical in literally keeping our tissues hydrated. And again, in particular for our brain and this brain-gut connection, which we're gonna to touch on a little bit today, is of the utmost importance. But for your brain, which is about upwards of 80% water, to maintain its water density, we require sodium. If we are deficient in sodium, your brain literally can't hold on to water properly and we get a dehydrated brain that, according to the journal Neurology, even short-term dehydration can reduce our brain volume. It can make our brain shrink. That is not good news. What does that translate to? Well, even a 2% drop in our body's baseline hydration level, and this is according to research cited in Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise, just a 2% drop in that baseline level can lead to impairment in our cognition, in particular, motor coordination, executive function. And I'm laughing because we start stumbling around. We're not getting around too well just because of dehydration in our brain, being able to operate our body in space and to perform. Also executive function like map recognition, grammatical reasoning, proofreading, mental math, putting one and one together to make two and not seven. All right, basic stuff. Now, of course, this might go to an extreme where we're having these cognitive declines, but we're looking for this fancy pants nootropic or this you know, newly invented concoction of whatever, when in reality, the primary thing for a cognitive function is water. Now, being that sodium and water have this intimate connection and symbiosis, again, sodium being required to maintain proper water balance throughout our bodies. The problem is, and this is according to the FDA, over 70% of the sodium in the average American's diet is through the consumption of processed foods. All right, this is where most folks are getting their sodium from, and it's a very, very low quality, highly refined version of that thing that we're looking for. So when we pull out all of that consumption of processed foods and we shift over, we start to eat more real whole foods, we could actually become deficient in sodium. This is not good. Researchers at Harvard have indicated that being deficient in this key electrolyte can actually increase the incidence of developing things like insulin resistance. Again, we need sodium, but we need it to be high quality from real whole foods, number one, and number two, to make sure we're getting our nutritional basis covered. We wanna make sure that we're getting it from an electrolyte source that doesn't come along with another leading culprit because when we think about electrolytes, they tend to come along with a sugar, a lot of sugar. Our artificial colors, artificial this, artificial that. We need high quality electrolytes because in this conversation today, talking about the microbiome, this study was published in Advances in Nutrition and covered that there are even more issues with sugar in our microbiome. In particular, they noted that there's a clear pro-inflammatory impact that sugar can create in our gut. All right, we need our electrolytes. We don't need the sugar. This is why I'm a huge fan of Element. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model and get the very best electrolytes with no sugar, no artificial craziness, none of that stuff, just the highest quality electrolytes that you're going to find. And most importantly, this is why dozens of professional teams are actually utilizing Element now and getting away from that crap that was kind of packaged up as this electrolyte source 
that people were doing previously, the gate around, the power raise. We're not doing that stuff anymore. They've upgraded and they have all of these fantastic data points on the optimal ratios of sodium, magnesium, potassium. And again, they've got the data to back it up. And right now you're going to get access to a free gift with every purchase of Element. So again, go to drinklmnt.com forward slash model. Take advantage of their incredible electrolyte formulas. And also you get a free gift with every purchase. You're going to get a sample pack to try out every single one of their electrolyte blends. Head over there, check them out. Drinklmnt.com forward slash model. Now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Setting the Standard for Health Information by CPIX. Sean Stevenson is doing the Lord's work. He's bringing us the information when the people we expect to serve us don't. He speaks truth with resources to back it up. He invites professionals on to share their knowledge, which can contradict one episode to the next, but that's the beauty of this podcast. It gives you the information you need to do your own research and make your own decisions to improve your health. I can't wait for what's still to come. Keep going, Mr. Stevenson. The world needs you. Wow. Thank you so much for leaving that review over on Apple Podcasts. It really did hit my heart. I truly do appreciate that. And that's what this is all about, is to bring in multiple perspectives, to be inclusive, but also having the same thread of being true to basic tenets of what our genes expect of us. That's a top priority. And there is no exception today with our special guest because she's going to knock your socks off with her knowledge. Our guest today has been appointed as a director of the Cedar Cyanide Microbiome Research Institute and also an assistant professor in the Cedar Cyanide Division of Gastroenterology, as well as associate professor at Cedar Cyanide Biomedical Sciences. And I'm talking about Dr. Suzanne Defkota. She's been specifically investigating the role of diet in shaping the outcomes of our microbiome. One of her areas of research looked at the effects of dietary fat on host microbiome interactions and the outcomes of inflammatory bowel diseases, which led to some of the first mechanistic insights into why, quote, modern diseases such as IBD and diabetes and food allergies have rapidly increased in the last few decades. Now, again, this conversation is incredibly insightful, looking at so many different dimensions of our microbial health and our overall health outcomes. But again, in particular, her field of expertise is looking at how food is affecting our microbiome. Let's jump into this conversation with the amazing Dr. Suzanne Devkota. First of all, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you for you. coming to hang out with us. Thanks. So awesome to see you. Why do we have a microbiome? <laughs> what, what is this all about? What is its purpose? It's actually, it's a really good question. The we have a microbiome because we evolved. So we evolved with microbes since humans started breathing air, and we kind of realized. Hey, now I'm making it sound like it's a con. It's evolution, really, but we didn't have much of a say in this. But our bacteria in our guts and fungi and so on can actually carry out metabolic and biochemical functions that our body cannot do on its own. And, and that evolved over time, I think, out of, out of efficiency. So, for example, the one we kind of think about most is there are certain fibers that we eat that our body doesn't actually have the enzymes to break down, but our microbes do. 
And so rather than there being redundancy in our bodies making those enzymes, if our microbes have them, then we can now focus on a different function and our microbes can do that for us. So there's many examples of that. So like outsourcing. It's kind of like outsourcing. Yeah, exactly. It's like outsourcing functions to your microbiome. Also, microbes produce some essential vitamins, nutrients that our bodies can't make. They can make B vitamins that we only get from either the diet or our bugs, some vitamin Ks and, and other vitamins like that. And so we really rely on them. And so if you wipe them out or you don't have a complete microbiome, you could potentially have some inadvertent like deficiencies nutritionally. Wow. So remarkable. And this is just scratching the surface. Yeah. Because essentially it's, it's providing us with things that if we don't have them, we can't do certain processes or do them efficiently right. if we're lacking on this particular diversity. Yeah. What about short-chain fatty acids? Yes. Our microbes make short-chain fatty acids abundantly, but they don't just make them without you giving them a substrate to metabolize. So fiber from the diet is the primary thing microbes use to make short-chain fatty acids, butyrate, acetate, propionate. And we now know those short-chain fatty acids are really important for gut health specifically gut health. We don't fully know how much of those short-chain fatty acids seep out into the bloodstream and go to the brain and other parts of the body. But we know your gut epithelium, your gut barrier, actually to keep that healthy and intact, short-chain fatty acids actually help support that. So that's why when we recommend fiber, it's really for gut health so that your microbes can make the short-chain fatty acids and promote a healthy gut barrier. Right. So we know, obviously... Again, gut health, which affects everything about us, mm -hmm. but also we have some correlations with some other things as well, whether it's things going on with our brain, with our metabolic health overall. It's a lot of cool stuff. And this is the thing, and I'm so grateful to have you on because you were actually in this world. You were in them guts, looking <laughs> at guts. what's going on and how <laughs> yeah. food specifically is yeah. impacting our microbiome. Yeah. So what led you to studying this and becoming really obsessed with this particular part of science? Yeah. I mean, like many other scientists' stories, it's accident, it's serendipity. It, a lot of the paths are not just straightforward. I didn't plan this coming out of the womb. That this is what I would do. The field didn't exist when I was born. But I always had an interest in nutrition fundamentally. And I have my, you know, my undergrad was in biology, but I did a master's in nutritional sciences and that really at Illinois and that really got me interested in how the body as irrespective of the bugs metabolizes, you know, at the molecular level, the foods that we eat. And I was in a lab, I was in Don Lehman's lab and we were really interested in high protein, low carb diets and, but the biochemistry of it. And it was really new to me and I was studying insulin signaling pathways and I really loved complex pathways. And I decided I wanted to go further. So I did a PhD in, in nutrition and in metabolism. And that was in like 2007, 2008. And just at that time, the microbiome field was kind of emerging as something we needed to really pay attention to. And the tools to study it were becoming accessible. And so I was, I was started grad school, did a rotation in a lab where it was a GI, gastroenterology lab. I didn't want to do GI research. I want to do diabetes research, actually, but I had to fill in a rotation spot. And I said, okay, I have a nutrition background. Let's ask a super simple question. How do dietary fats affect your gut microbiome? 
and not just quantity, high fat versus low fat, but saturated, polyunsaturated, monounsaturated. Break it down, right? Does the source of the fat really make a difference? Really, really, really simple question. And we did it in mice. And we found that there was a profound shift in the microbiome when, you, when the animals consume saturated fats compared to the other fats. Didn't matter how much of the fat, but they were consuming saturated fat and it promoted a bloom of these bacteria that were potentially pro-inflammatory. So that sort of rocked my world and made me really think that these bacteria and, and nutrition, there's a link there related to health and disease. And I really kind of wanted to dive into that. So I didn't know what I was going to see, but that really convinced me. That's so cool. And then obviously to take it a thousand steps forward and to open your lab, yeah. <laughs> like what, what drove you to do that? Yeah. I always knew I wanted to have a lab. I wanted to be in academia doing research and kind of, I had all these ideas in my head, you know, that I wanted to explore. And when you're in graduate school and then a postdoc, you're in a lab of someone else's lab. And so you have to do research that's kind of within the theme of that person's, you know. But you eventually start to develop your own ideas and you're just like bursting at the seams. And you're like, I got to get my own lab so I can ask my own questions. And that, that was really the driver because I had so many questions I wanted to ask and hopefully answer. That's so remarkable. Yeah. So, so basically, you don't like being told what to do. Let's just be <laughs> honest. Who does? I mean, yeah. I mean, some people do. They like, you know, but I love that because, again, you're, you're bursting at the seams, as you said, with things that you want to, you know, study or experiment with or ask questions. But being that you didn't have your own lab, you kind of had to, you know, the politicization of the thing. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. And so you opening your lab, it's been pretty remarkable the information and just you know our mutual friend mm -hmm. uh gabrielle Lyons mm -hmm. just been sharing so many cool things that you've been up to and i want to talk about some of these things mm -hmm. but i think primarily if you could and i know this is a super complex question i'm mm -hmm. going to ask you but obviously the microbiome is having a huge moment and it's kind of serendipitous even your timing of getting into the field mm -hmm. right like it's so remarkable because this is like the big thing yeah what makes up a healthy microbiome? Yeah, that is the question that all of us in the field want to know. And it's such an important question because many of us are studying microbiomes and disease, but you can't def understand disease without understanding healthy. What we do know unequivocally, I don't think anyone would argue with this, is that every person, every organism's microbiome is different from one, and it's like a fingerprint, right? And we see all the studies, if you look at all of these big sequencing studies, the number one conclusion, the first conclusion that comes out is inter-individual variation. Once you normalize for that, you can start to look for the other like treatment effects. So what is healthy for you might not be healthy for me and vice versa, right? So there's this interplay of your body's chemistry, your biochemistry, there's a little bit of genetics that determines your biochemistry. And where in the world did you, were you born? Like what parents were you, what families were you born into? What foods were you weaned onto? You know, what water supply are you drinking? What air are you breathing? All of that stuff determines your microbiome. It's not this, it's not nature versus nurture. It really is, you know, it's nurture, it's your environment primarily that determines it yeah. and everyone's environment is slightly different. So 
that's a very unsatisfying answer, you know, <laughs> but there are some things that we know that are kind of core conclusions that we would all point to as being healthy. Um, number one is a diverse microbiome. So having many different types of bacteria in your gut. It's your bacteria, you know, they carry out essential functions. There's redundancy in those functions. So the more diverse bacteria you have, the more redundancy is built in. So if you accidentally knock one of them out, the functions can still proceed. If you have low diversity, you knock out that function and it can no longer be carried out. So diversity is really important. And so when we say diversity, that's why. And that's really the primary thing that we know. You want a lot of different bugs in your GI tract. So then when you think about, okay, what can I do to maintain that? It's kind of common sense. Antibiotics, right? Wipe out your gut bacteria. So obviously chronic antibiotic use isn't going to be good for a healthy microbiome. Um, things like that. You can yeah. sort of extrapolate how to maintain health in your microbiome. Wow, this is fascinating. And you said with the nature versus nurture thing, this brings the question, you would probably have a microbiome that's more similar to your wife than say your mother. Totally, yeah, absolutely. There's been studies on this. And I love to quote these studies. Cohabitation is a major driver of your microbiome composition and not so much like it'll shift you completely shift you, but it'll make you more similar to another person, right? And even if you have pets, mm. you can exchange microbes with your pets. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, it just is, right? And so this might be a topic we get into later, but in the early days of fecal transplants. Um, <laughs> I just wrote fecal <laughs> transplant. I just wrote it. We're lined up. I know. Um, in the early days, before there were stool banks where you could go and get stool, the recommendation was your donor should be a healthy person you live with because it will be more likely to engraft in your gut because it's kind of more similar. It probably is some of your original bugs. So there is something to the cohabitation and similarity. Yeah. All right. Now, since we're on fecal transplants, <laughs> yeah. which can sound super weird, first of all, what is it? Uh -huh. And second of all, what are some of the benefits that we're actually seeing in, in science right now? Yeah, a fecal transplant is collecting stool from a donor and using it to a recipient, either through multiple routes, either through capsules, uh, through a nasogastric tube from the top, or through like an enema from the bottom. So you can kind of colonize all the relevant parts of the gut, but it's essentially col colonizing one person with another person's microbiome. It is I, I, I feel like it's common knowledge, but I realize that it's not. And it sounds very gross to a lot of people. And it kind of is, but it works for certain diseases amazingly. It's like a miracle. So the one area, the condition in America that you can do a fecal transplant kind of legally in, in, in a hospital is for recurrent Clostridioides difficile infection. And this is a bacteria that it's actually, we, many of us have it naturally. It doesn't cause any problems. But when you go on broad spectrum antibiotics and you suppress the competition and if it's in your gut, it will overgrow. And sometimes you can get rid of it with antibiotics, but sometimes you can't and it keeps coming back. So it's recurrent. Recurrent C. diff is what we call it. And it can cause colitis, like really, yeah. really bad intestinal inflammation. And there's no treatment for it in these patients who get it in a recurrent state except for fecal transplant. So the FDA has approved it for these individuals. 
And there are uh, stool banks, such as Open Biome, which is based in Boston, that has donors that will, healthy donors that get screened, they get screened for infectious diseases and so on. And the stool is there and a doctor can call the stool bank and request, you know, capsules. It's like, it's a lot, it's like 30 capsules you have to take. But many people prefer that over getting, you know, a tube stuck in them. And so it's, and it, and it works, um, it works actually, I think the, the studies that have been done show something in the range of like 95% efficacy and or antibiotics. Yeah. So it's been a miracle cure for these people. And many, many scientists are trying to recreate stool synthetically, yeah. right? And it doesn't do as good a job hmm. as the real thing. There and we, we go don't again. know why. It's, it's, I mean, for me, it's a little bit obvious, you know, of course we have this paradigm, better living through science and mm -hmm. science is obviously super important. There are certain things that are incredibly difficult. I wouldn't say impossible to replicate, but that pro for, for stool to be created, like so many, like we're talking probably millions of interactions yeah. at minimum are taking place. Like, right. and these things have kind of evolved over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years or longer to be able to do this particular thing, yeah. you know? And so, and there's this intelligence. And I, this is really the, the point is, there's this intelligence with our microbes mm -hmm. that is just so remarkable. And we're just now starting to understand some of it. Yeah. With that said, this intelligence and what we've evolved kind of giving as inputs, because you said this at the very beginning, it's not the microbes in and of themselves is what we're feeding them to, right? So yeah. these are the prebiotics. Yeah. Exactly. Now, with this interaction and what we've evolved eating, what happens when we go to an extreme mm -hmm. with various diets, right? Yeah. And we know the guys, you know, these are my friends and colleagues, <laughs> you know, we got a carnivore camp yeah. over here. We've got vegan camp all the way, polar opposites, Yeah. right, on what they're constituting for their diet, right. you know, that they're providing their microbiome. What have you found? Because again, you're looking at what's happening with food interactions with these various diets yeah. and us potentially leaving things out. Yeah. So I don't hate on any any one of these diets because just like the microbiome is like a fingerprint, what diet and way of eating works for one person versus another, it you know, if you feel good on it and you're you're healthy and you go to the doctor, your blood bath, all that looks good, then you're feeling good on it. You know, that's really and you can maintain the, the that way of eating then that's really all that, that matters. So, so that's, that's fine, wh whichever these diets people choose. But there, going back to the concept of diversity of your gut microbiome, the way you create diversity is by eating diverse foods, okay? So if you're very one-dimensional in the types of foods that you eat, if you're eating a carnivore diet, you are a, eating a very one-dimensional diet compared to an omnivore. I mean, there's no way to argue against that. But if you're eating mostly meat, you're going to facilitate a microbiome community that is very efficient at metabolizing amino acids and proteins, right? And breaking that down. So your bugs is form and function, right? Your bugs are, the bugs you have are the result of what you are feeding them. It's really, it's really straightforward. It's not rocket science. And so if you are an omnivore and you're eating meat uh, and you're eating plants and you're eating, you know, whatever, what, mushrooms. You know, mushrooms, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, you're going to have bugs that will break down lignans, that will break down amino acids, that will 
break down phytochemicals that are not, you know, in these other diets. So you, you have just more diverse bugs. And so I, my personal feeling is an omnivore diet is the healthiest diet you can eat. Now, there's so many versions of omnivore right. ranging from ultra unhealthy to very healthy. So obviously there's a spectrum within that. But I'm an omnivore. I eat, I eat meat. I eat everything pretty much. And, you know, so that, but that's a personal preference. But narrow diets beget a narrow microbiome. And it may not manifest in the moment as a problem. I know many people eat narrow diets and, and have normal bowel movements and things like that. But we haven't followed the long-term effects of this. And, and we need to. And I actually have been thinking about, I'd love to sort of crowdsource people who'd be interested, put it out there. I would love to get some carnivores who want to donate stool samples. And let's answer this question, right? Yeah. Let's compare the carnivore to omnivore to vegans, right? And actually, let's just look longitudinally at microbiomes. And I will do that study. So whoever wants to do it, <laughs> hit me up and let's design a cool study to really answer this once and for all. Yeah, I love it. And that's the thing is asking these questions and actually let's put together a study and let's look at it, yeah. you know? And it seems obvious, but part of the cool thing about you having your lab and being acclimated to this world, you know, even though if we might have these questions, there's an issue with, again, politics and funding and all yeah. these things, but we don't have to have all this infighting. Like we can answer these questions, but I think one of the biggest, most important things that you've already shared, which is we're all so unique mm -hmm. and there are gonna be outliers on those polar opposites. Right. And we can all have little trysts with mm -hmm. these different things as well and experiment, find out what's best for us. Yeah. But Part of the problem, I think, is we become so idealistic and dogmatic. You know, we find something that works for us and we assume it's going to work for everybody right. else. Yeah. And our microbiome, our unique microbial fingerprint would have something else to say about that. Yeah. And I just kind of like to go back to what have we been doing the longest as a species, mm -hmm. right? As far as like a, a completely vegan society or culture, we haven't seen that before. So yeah. we're running an experiment which can manifest health potentially. We have to be open to that. Right. And same thing, we very rarely see a completely carnivore society throughout history. We've seen a little bit more close, something closer to that. Mm -hmm. But even folks that are doing a more of a animal-based protocol, a lot of times are still including mm -hmm. some plant foods as well. Yeah. You know, and especially as they go over time. Mm -hmm. But this is not to say that there aren't going to be outliers, because a lot of times we point to, well, this person's been doing this for 40 yeah. years. Look at I know. There's liar is then the word outlier too, by the way. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm just going to throw it out there. You right. know, once you find, you know, actually meet some of these people. But, um, but all, again, when we find something that works, I, I'm so grateful that you said that. Like, we can't knock that. We can't just say, you know, especially again, if you're healthy, you feel good, your blood works good. Now, I want you to give yourself permission to be open in case you do run into a pitfall. Yeah. And don't tie yourself to this ideal versus what's best for you, yeah, right? And so I wanna ask you about this because these diversity inputs, what happens when we lose diversity, yeah. right? Can we, like for example, let's just say that we jump onto an animal-based diet and we're doing that for a while and we're feeling good, but then we start to maybe develop a d deficiency mm -hmm. or whatever the case might be. Can we get species back once we lose them? Yes and no. It depends on how long that reduction diversity has has gone on. So an example I will give is from a study from Justin Sonnenberg at Stanford, great microbiome researcher. Um, 
did this beautiful study. It's in mice, but it's an amazing proof of concept study that highlights this. So he was looking at generational loss of microbes over four to five generations of mice that were born and was looking at what happens if progressively you start losing fiber in your diet and stop eating fiber, right? So they had mom mice that were on a high fiber diet and then the pups were weaned onto a high fiber diet and they had this complex, diverse microbiome. Then each subsequent generation was weaned onto like no fiber diets, right? And you could see the progressive loss of certain species of microbes, major classes that we view as, you know, important microbes today. And as the generations went on, when they tried to reintroduce fiber into the diet, they could not, no matter how much fiber they gave, re-support those lost bugs and re-colonize those support bugs, those, those bugs that they lost. So there was a point where no matter what you do, your diet cannot recover what you've lost. They go extinct. Yeah, they go extinct. Extinction. And that was a really, that was probably the first paper that talked about extinction of microbes. And it's kind of controversial because people always believed you could kind of bring bugs back, but it's just showing, no, you couldn't. And if you look at our trajectory as humans over, you know, from our hunter-gatherers to our lives now, there has been almost certainly extinction events in our microbiome. And you can look into some cultures around the world. There have been studies of the Hadza, which people have, have read a lot about the Hadza in Africa. You look at Inuits in, in Alaska and in New Guinea and native populations, and they have fundamentally different microbiomes than we have. They're much more diverse. And so we've lost, we as a westernized society, industrialized society, I guess, have, have lost some of these, these organisms and we likely won't get them back. Probiotics are not really the solution because they are a very narrow spectrum of bugs and they may not be the ones we've actually lost. And so in the short term, if you like decide to go carnivore for a year and then you go back, yeah, you could probably recover you know, anything you've lost. Generationally, you can actually have extinction events. Wow. And you just mentioned these different populations Mm -hmm. with incredibly diverse and different microbiomes, right? The Hadza, Mm -hmm. Inuit, but they tend to be, they tend to experience far less chronic diseases Mm -hmm. that we see today in our modern society, Yeah, which also speaks to when we see this loss in diversity or even a certain cascade of bacteria, can we see correlations with certain health issues like obesity, for example, based on our bacteria makeup? Yeah. You know, it's it's difficult to deconvolute that from other lifestyle factors, right? I'm I'm not a microbiome researcher that believes the microbiome is the end all and be all to, you know, all all the chronic diseases we're experiencing today. I do think it's a factor and an important factor to some and not others. I think metabolic diseases, there is almost certainly a role for the microbiome. Will it trump eating, overeating? I don't know that that's the case. I think, you know, controlling portion sizes and exercise and all that will still always be the primary solution for treating obesity. But could it be that, you know, there's always those stories of I'm doing everything right and I'm still not losing weight, right? Or I'm still having, you know, to take, take metformin or whatever. And it's likely there are underlying issues potentially related to your microbiome that could be involved there. And those are the kinds of things we're, we're trying to, to understand. But if you look at these societies, as you, as you mentioned, that don't have these chronic diseases, there are also other things at play, 
such as uh, communal living, hygiene, eating, you know, from the earth, the, the style of eating that can all play into preventing chronic diseases. But all those things affect the microbiome in actually a beneficial way. You know, your microbiome is it becomes more diverse by being exposed to your environment, yeah. by being exposed to other people, as we talked about by being exposed to natural foods, eating with the seasons, that sort of thing. We know those things to be true. So you can't, like, they're all, it's all connected. And your microbiome's a part, part of it. Yeah, yeah. Even exercise yeah. and movement right. affects our microbiome. There's some new research on that, too. Mm -hmm. And what I'm really hearing you say is, like, there isn't necessarily a chicken or egg scenario here. Mm -hmm. We know that they feed into each other. It's not that the microbiome issues or the thriving nature of it is causing these other things. And this is not necessarily causing. Yeah. They all are associated in relationship. And this is, but again, that's so obvious. Yeah. You know, everything is going to affect that fingerprint. Right. And even your fingerprint today, is it going to be the same tomorrow? Right. Probably. Yeah, probably. But you have, you know, your microbiome can change dramatically in a 24 hour cycle, but it tends to bounce back. You know, and we've done studies with intermittent fasting and uh, we've seen, you know, with at the like 16 hour time point of fasting, your microbiome diversity plummets. Right. But as soon as you start eating again, it goes right back up. So you have some dynamic shifts day to day. But if you looked at someone's lifespan, you know, from your microbiome's kind of stabilized around puberty, 14, 15, 16, that age, all the way to adulthood it's pretty darn stable, right? You have to do, you have to have, you know, chronic antibiotic use, things like that, major events to really, uh, you know, GI surgery to really cause a dramatic shift. But traveling, you know, jet lag, you know, trying out different diets for a short period, moving into a new place, those are kind of blips in the big, in the big picture. But if you do those things chronically, you can alter the overall community. Right. Got a quick break coming up. We'll be right back. Recently, scientists have discovered that the human gut is a mass of neural tissue filled with 30 types of neurotransmitters, just like our brains. Because of the massive amount of brain-like tissue found in the gut, it has rightfully earned the title of being, quote, the second brain. Technically known as the enteric nervous system, this second brain consists of around 100 million neurons. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Researchers at UCLA discovered that the trillions of bacteria in your gut are continuously communicating with your enteric nervous system, AKA your second brain. And researchers from Caltech reported that certain bacteria in the gut play an important role in the production of hormones that are crucial for our mental health, body composition, and even our sleep quality. With the impact of processed foods, stress, and environmental toxins, the health of our microbiome can be severely disrupted. In addition to a healthy, real food diet, there are wonderful sources of nutrition that can improve the health of our microbiome like few things can. A recent study published in the peer-reviewed journal Nature Communications uncovered that a unique compound called theobrownin found in a traditional fermented tea called pu'er has some remarkable effects on our microbiome. The researchers found that theobrownin positively alters our gut microbiota and directly reduces excessive liver cholesterol and reduces lipogenesis, aka the creation of new fat. Another study published in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry found that pu'er may be able to reverse gut dysbiosis by dramatically reducing ratios of potentially harmful bacteria 
and increasing ratios of beneficial bacteria. This tea is truly incredible, but as with everything, the quality and sourcing matters a lot. This is why I drink the fermented Pu'er tea from Peak Life. They use a patented cold extraction technology that extracts the bioactive compounds in their teas at cold to low temperatures. And this process actually helps to increase the amount of antioxidants and phytonutrients that we are getting from our tea. And I also love that it's wild harvested, meaning that it's even more concentrated in polyphenols than any other tea source. Plus, Peak is making sure that it's triple toxin screened for one of the highest levels of purity. And right now in the industry with teas, there are a lot of things going on with heavy metals, toxic molds. So making sure that there's none of that in their incredible tea. They have over 20 delicious award-winning flavors. And I'm sure that you're gonna find more than one that you love. Go to peaklife.com forward slash model and use the code model at checkout. And you're gonna get 10% off their remarkable Pu'er tea and all of their other tea varieties. Again, go to peaklife.com forward slash model. That's P-I-Q-U-E. L-I-F-E dot com forward slash model. Use the code model at checkout for 10% off. And now back to the show. So mentioning surgery, mm -hmm. what about the microbiome? Is there any changes that take place if someone has, say, a gastric bypass procedure? You know, which again, uh, these procedures have skyrocketed in yeah. recent years. Is there a change to the microbiome? Yeah. So I'll for, we and we're actually doing research in this, but before that, I'll preface it by saying there was a, a study published looking at exactly this, I believe in science translational medicine many, many years ago, where they looked at the microbiome before and after, the gut microbiome before and after gastric bypass, and they found huge changes. And they found that that correlated with, you know, with gastric bypass, most of the metabolic issues are corrected with gastric, like people get off most of their medications, but actually the field doesn't really know why because it happens so quickly, even before the weight reduction occurs. And they found this coincides with changes in the microbiome. is largely correlational. We are studying how bacteria interact with fat tissue directly to cause mm. fat expansion. Mm. And for that, we are accessing patients who have had gastric bypass, and we're getting their fat tissue and their gut tissue. And the interesting thing there is we are isolating live bacteria from the fat tissue of, of these individuals. And what we have found leading up to this study in another set of patients with Crohn's disease is that bacteria leave the gut pretty often in even healthy people. But in chronic diseases, they tend to, more bacteria tend to leave the gut and more pathogenic bacteria tend to leave the gut. And they embed themselves in fat tissue. And they can actually cause a fat tissue to expand. So this is a potential new paradigm around obesity that is independent of excess calories and mm. lack of physical activity that relates to your gut barrier and what we might call leaky gut. It's totally a new concept and we're really kind of diving into that. But it could be we think it, it goes beyond Crohn's disease. We think it is related to obesity. We think it's related to other conditions in the body where fat expands around your organs and causes downstream issues. So it's like direct bacteria to fat cell interactions. Wow, that is so fascinating. And this reminds me some research from the Wiseman Institute. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of paralleling the question I asked you a little bit earlier about the potential correlation with obesity, 
you know, maybe insulin resistance, mm -hmm. when we have shifts in the microbiome, yeah. but not really, again, the chicken or the egg, we don't really know, but you're asking these questions and finding out, and now we've got this interaction with bacteria and our fat cells themselves, yeah. which again, it makes sense, you know, because before you know it, there's like little inklings of things like a brain biome mm -hmm. being a potential here, right. you know? So this begs the question, we've already moved from the gut microbiome to how does that impact things that are moving away from the gut? Like our skin, for example, our skin has a microbiome, yeah. but are these two in association? Yeah. I mean, you see now the gut fill in the blank axis, right? The gut brain axis, the gut skin axis, the gut joint axis. Yeah. So all of those are really interesting and hot areas right now. So yes, there are defined niches in the body that microbes live as in communities. The gut, obviously, skin, the mouth, throat, and the urogenital tract. Those all have their own microbiome communities. But this concept that are these communities communicating is really new. I mean, people are even talking about, you know, the gut and the urogenital tract communication related to preterm birth, right? And how babies are colonized. You know, from the beginning, we always thought it was, you know, vaginal bugs were the first bugs to colonize a baby. But now we're finding that gut bugs as well. And what actually, how is that happening? So it's, an, it's a totally new, new area. In terms of more distant sites, so gut brain, you know, gut skin, what is likely happening there is the gut has the highest density of microbes in the body. And those microbes are producing chemicals, like huge amounts of chemicals, divert, like things like serotonin, things that we usually think that only our body makes, our bugs can also make those. And they're small and they diffuse into the bloodstream and they circulate in the body. So they can circulate to the brain, they can circulate to the skin. So it is very likely that there is communication through the chemicals, not necessarily at these distant sites through the bugs themselves, but through the chemicals that they're making. And it's a very difficult thing to study yeah. because the tools we have, it's not easy to distinguish what is a chemical made by a bacteria versus made by our bodies because they can do sometimes the same. So the tools need to be worked on a little bit better, but absolutely these axes from the gut going to other sites is a real thing. Wow, that's so cool. It's not like, again, like a gut bug is like yelling at a skin microorganism. Right. Hey, Ezekiel, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and having that kind of thing versus yeah. um, the chemicals that they're creating, you yeah. know, again, in us, for us and that. But man, this is expanding to a whole other domain. Uh, these are things that we couldn't understand, you know, not that long ago, right. but now being able to like really zoom in and look at what's happening. Now, part of this, though, when we zoom in, we start to try to identify and target this is the cause of this problem. Right. And then we tend to have, you know, potential multi-billion dollar yeah. <laughs> drug for that one little thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And in reality, we've kind of gone to war with microbes. Yeah. Right? Since the this discovery, you know, having a strong enough microscope is like, oh, shit, that's what's causing all these problems. Yeah. Let's kill that stuff not realizing we're mostly made of that stuff. Right, so yeah. So are we, are we too clean right now <laughs> as a society? I think so. I think especially after the last few years, yeah, absolutely we are. It's, you know, the knee-jerk reaction to microbes is you want to get rid of them, right? We're, since we were little, 
we were raised to think, you know, but you, you don't eat that thing off the floor, wash your hands all the time. I'm not saying you shouldn't do those things. I mean, there's five if, second rule. Yeah. If you're in a New York City subway and you're holding that pole, you better wash your hands and don't oh, t- t- don't touch your eye. What's been on you know? that pole? Yeah, because you will almost certainly get pink eyes. So, yes, there are certain cases. Just use your common sense and wash your hands. But people have taken that to the extreme, especially with their kids. And kids are there's so much to learn from how kids are calling, like how their guts are colonized. And and there's a lot of focus and research on on babies and kids. And whenever I have a friend who has a baby, I'm like, come on, give me (laughs) give me some stool so we can track your baby over the first few years and see if they're being colonized appropriately, because we know that. You asked me, what, why do we have a microbiome? The other important role for having a microbiome is to educate your immune system. And your gut has the highest density of immune cells in the entire body. And if you don't educate your gut appropriately very early on, you can cause aberrant immune responses everywhere else. And we see, okay, why are there peanut allergies everywhere? Why are there all of these things that didn't really exist when I was in school even, you know, and in part it's because, you know, you don't see the effects until many, many years later, but we have transitioned into a society that is, at least in the U.S., hyper clean. And I'm a big advocate, as are many of my colleagues, that we need having pets in the house, letting your kids play outside. You know, kids are on video games, they're inside all the time, and it's a problem. Many of us didn't grow up that way. We were, you know, outside and just go home for dinner or whatever it is. Or, and that is probably the healthier way to, to live. Now, you can recreate things like that. You know, not everyone's comfortable letting their kids just run out wild into the street. I grew up in the Midwest. It was, you know, pretty like the woods were right in the backyard, but maybe you live in an urban environment and that's not an option. Still, like being outdoors is so important. Interaction with other kids, other people, even as adults, is really important. And we've kind of eliminated that rightfully so for three years, but what's going to happen? What are we going to see as the effects yeah. over the next five years? Um, and we're seeing it right now with our, all the respiratory infections in kids. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And of course, them being the least susceptible to all of the distancing and the shutdowns and all the things, right. you know, I, for me, one of the things I was kind of trying to bring to light, which is having this one size fits all approach might not be a good idea because what are the long-term ramifications? Yeah, And we're already seeing some of those psychological, but also half of my son's school was like out of school. Right, yeah. Just like, I and know. it's not the vid, it was, you know, all these kids are RSC getting sick with something like else. Yeah. And they, their immune systems haven't had this education. And this is really what I'm hearing too, is that like the environment and being in nature and interacting versus being on the, you know, the, the PlayStation. Yeah. We're, we're missing out on all these inputs for our microbiome mm-hmm. and thus the training for our immune system yeah. and thus making us more susceptible potentially to all manner of things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, go, it goes beyond just childhood obesity, sedentary, you know, playing video games, sedentary. There's the whole immune, the things you don't see, you know, the, the gut education, immune system and all that is as important as the just simply metabolically and getting physical activity. So yeah, absolutely. And kids, you know, if we support healthy microbiomes in kids now, you know, the long-term effect on the healthcare system and everything will be so much less than what we're seeing today. Can we talk about where this all started? Like the hygiene hypothesis. <laughs> let's just talk about that a little bit. 
The origins of it, I mean, have been infectious diseases research has been studied for a long time. And the definition of the hygiene hypothesis has has different forms. And maybe I'd have a very liberal definition of the hygiene hypothesis, whereas in some definitions, it's strictly related to like antibiotic usage. And so the, the topic has been discussed, st- discussed for a while. But there there's this figure I use a lot in my talks from the New England Journal of Medicine where it shows the early 1900s. Um, you can see an increase in like this staggering rise in, in deaths from infectious diseases. That's what most people were dying from in the early part of the 1900s. Then you go from 1950 onwards and you see a dramatic drop in those, but a dramatic increase in chronic diseases. And so this has been, you know, one of the, the things that has been pointed to as an explanation has been our, our over, you know, modern medicine, which is great and that's important, but the chronic disease part is the improper education of our immune system through over sanitization. And, and so there's, you know, there's, there is probably something to it. It's probably multifactorial, but it's a concept that's been studied for quite a while. And there's a couple, I have colleagues who've written a couple books on this and they're compelling. If you want to like really kind of dive into it and, and learn more, you can check those out. It, it is uh, a really interesting, really interesting theory. Yeah. It seems like the obvious thing would be to have a little balance with this. Like mm-hmm. you said, you know, if you're on the pole in the subway, right. you know, it might be a good time. Or if you're, you know, out at a, a gala, like I was yesterday, shaking a bunch of mm-hmm. hands and that kind of thing. And then you want to go dip your fingers in some guacamole. <laughs> right. Maybe you wash your hands, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. but you know, I've seen this where, you know, walking into a classroom, for example, they've got the, um, Purell, yeah, the Purell pump. Yeah. Right. right there as you walk in and like doing this five times a day sometimes people are doing it more yeah is that a good idea like what is this what is it doing potentially to our skin yeah microbiome yeah i mean there have been studies now so the all the hand sanitizers that you see today are alcohol based so they just cause your hands to get really really dry and they will kill whatever kind of bugs are on there there have been studies now kind of looking at hand sanitizer use and effects on on your microbiome sort of skin and actually gut microbiome as well and they're seeing some effect. Now, I, I don't like to mention them as much because it's very so- associative and I don't like some of these association studies because they're still, the relationship's a little bit tenuous. But you almost certainly are affecting the, the, my, your skin microbiome by chronic, you know, sanitizing use. But that's really your hands. Most people aren't wiping it on their whole body, you know. Um, mm, there's some people out I don't there. know, maybe. <laughs> but you now also see these products that are, microbiome like body cleansers and and you know so i think people are starting to realize that hey maybe the over cleaning isn't necessarily good and we need to kind of try to support either the the barrier of your skin or try to repopulate them in some way i don't necessarily believe that probiotic skin products are are right but protecting your skin natural environment is important sanitizers before were really problematic because they had bactericidal chemicals in them that actually would kill bugs or prevent colonization of potential bugs. And the FDA actually made companies eliminate those because the companies couldn't prove that having that in the product was actually better than just alcohol alone. And so the FDA said there's potential more detrimental side effects to having those in there than than keeping them. So all the companies had to get rid of them. So now the hand sanitizers are just alcohol and and that's okay, but I wouldn't use it in excess. Actually, soap and water is really the best way to go for cleaning your hands. If you have access to that, choose soap and water. Don't take it. 
alcohol-based hand sanitizer. This gets me thinking. So this is external. And again, we can't see it. And I think that's part of the issue too. But, you know, it's we have this protective barrier that's evolved. You know, again, we don't really understand mm-hmm. the intelligence that's there. And we could just kind of tear it down as we're doing this um, habitually, really. You yeah. know, again, there's a spot case for you to use some, you know, but ideally, again, soap and water. But internally, mm-hmm. this got me thinking about that as well with, oh, man, you know, I was just looking at the environmental working group and some of this stuff on pesticides and herbicides mm-hmm. and this whole stuff. And there's so yeah. many that are like caught up in red tape. Yeah. Like there's one like Clopyrifos is found to like disrupt microbial genes in some kind of abnormal way that's like leading to higher into incidence of like birth defects yeah. and you know it's just it's so crazy and it's the data is there mm-hmm. enough to be like let's let's pause on this and it's been going on for quite some time yeah but because these companies again it's it's about growing the food and yeah. getting rid of those pests but what are we made of you know those same microorganisms that you're trying to kill these little bugs what about our bugs yeah Yeah, the environmental toxins is a really fascinating area. Things like glyphosate, you know, common sort of pesticides, there's been research on their effects on the microbiome and definitely sort of reducing gut microbiome diversity. One thing that, you know, apart from the microbiome, chemical pesticides and other things like that are found in paint and so on. Have been, are called endocrine disruptors. And they've been studied for a long time for their effect on creating like insulin resistance because these chemicals actually get stored in fat. Your fat like sops up all this stuff. And so the more fat you have, the more you'll store in your body. And they're things that you, they're insidious. They're kind of, whether yeah. it was BPA at one time and plastics, things we don't really know that are in our food supply or otherwise. And they get stored in fat tissue. And so then what happens when you lose weight? Do you release all that into your body? You know, what is the side effect of that? But it's a, they actually interact. They're, they are, they have chemical structures that can mimic hormones. They can interfere with sort of our metabolism of certain, you know, sterols and you know, we don't, we don't know. That's an, and that's independent of the microbiome. There are not a lot of people in the microbiome field studying the interaction of those with the microbiome, and there probably should be. A lot of people are studying the role of like food additives, you know, that are intentionally put into the food supply to make food taste better and so on. But the environmental toxins is a really important field I think more people need to look into from a microbiome gut health perspective. Yeah, I think all of these things are stacking conditions against us. Mm-hmm. You know, just and again, the last few decades is where we've seen this rampant increase in chronic disease. But like you said, infectious diseases went down for a bit, but even a few of those are like on the rise. Yeah. And I was looking at a, a study that was kind of looking at a snapshot, like the mid 80s mm-hmm. and seeing ironically, and even the research was just like, surprisingly, we are seeing an increase in infectious diseases. And potentially we're gonna have both at epidemic proportions mm-hmm. here because of the overall disruption of our of our terrain. Yeah. I think, you know, it's intimately connected. And earlier you mentioned probiotics mm-hmm. and obviously this is a huge market, yeah. you know, and that's a thing. Marketers <laughs> hear a thing. I, yeah. When I see a commercial like on uh, network TV for probiotic, then I know, okay, like, is this of efficacy? Mm-hmm. And I think we can miss the point because we superficially believe that this is this whatever 10 billion units of whatever is something that your body needs. Yeah. 
and or that it's going to even populate. Yeah. It can just be an expensive jar of whatever. Versus you mentioned you mentioned the poop pills. Mm-hmm. All right? yeah. I think that the, yeah. <laughs> the efficacy there is different because there's kind of like uh, an intelligence there. Yeah. And more of a resonance maybe with the human body versus whatever they're doing to yeah. make these probiotics. Right. Let's talk about yeah. that. Yeah. As I said, I mean, people have tried to recapitulate what is in stool, you know, to create healthy microbial communities and it doesn't work. Right. So I'm not saying everyone should be going out doing fecal transplants like at home if, if you're otherwise healthy. And so like really don't do it at home. Just don't do it at home. <laughs> but a probiotic is kind of that concept. It's a synthetic community that has been created in hopes that it will colonize your gut and, and, and do something good. I commend people for recognizing that gut health is important for overall health and wanting to do something about it. So, you know, people are always like, was all, all this whole time, was I doing nothing? And I, I, I don't, you know, they don't not do nothing, right? They just don't do what you think they're doing. And you're spending a lot of money doing what diet likely can do for you, the foods that you're eating versus spending a hundred bucks on your probiotic. Now, what I will say is probiotic technology and research has come such a long way from where it was just five years ago, 10 years ago. So there's going to be new generations of probiotics that already are in development that are going to make a difference. And I think companies are trying to do good in this space. But the existing formulations, what they really are, just different combinations of the same old bugs that we keep seeing. And there has been a lot of regulation around how they're labeled, you know, on a bottle, what needs to be shown before it was the Wild West. You didn't know what was alive in that pill. A lot of them were dead. A lot of them were not ever like verified, like they'll say a number, but they was never actually tested at manufacturing that it was 10 billion or 20 billion. It's just kind of put in there. And it became a multi-billion dollar industry with very little regulation. Yeah. And so now that's kind of all coming to a head and the labeling is coming, becoming a lot better. You know, people want to know, OK, if I want to take a probiotic, what should I look for? And I say, OK, listen, I'm not going to convince you one way or other. But if you choose to take a probiotic, what should you look for? You obviously having a lot of CFUs, and you'll say on the label, you know, 50 billion plus. And the, I try to explain, you know, you have 100 trillion at least bacteria in your gut. That's a lot of zeros. And your 10 billion, 10 billion to 100 trillion is like a drop in the Pacific Ocean. And you're hoping that makes a difference. It ain't going to happen. So you need, you want as many billion CFUs as possible. Then you want as many diverse kinds of bugs in that probiotic as possible as well. And ideally, the probiotic has a prebiotic in it. So some fiber source, something to support those bugs. And ideally, an encapsulated version, right, that can make it past the stomach acid and colonize appropriately, hopefully. There's, you, you won't never know if it colonizes, actually, but you hope. So those three things would be things that I really would look for if you choose to take a probiotic and, and hope. hope for the best Mm. (laughs) and hope for the best yeah you know this gets me back to thinking again what have we done the longest which is eating a diversity of foods community interaction environment all of these inputs are going to strengthen support a healthy microbiome and working at a university for so long i work with people from all over the Mm. world and i got into this place where i started asking each person from a different culture about cultured foods, Mm -hmm. you know, and without fail, whether they were from Ethiopia or from Korea, there's 
a cultured food that is like a staple in their mm -hmm. traditional diet. Not that they're necessarily eating that way anymore, yeah. not that they're here at this university in America, but every culture had some kind of a cultured food. Is mm -hmm. there any potential benefit there with, yeah. with, with fermented foods? It is, it is a great point. Every culture does have some fermentation process that is kind of a staple or was a staple at one point. And from an anthropological standpoint, it's pretty fascinating. And there's, you know, fermentation is an, an excellent preservative, you know, can keep things for a long time. So there are reasons for that, how it developed in part for that, those purposes. But Fermented foods are going through a huge renaissance right now. And during the pandemic, people were fermenting everything, pickling everything, creating, you know, I mean, it was a thing to do. Being, it, sourdough bread's a fermented food to a degree. And you couldn't find yeast anywhere <laughs> during the pandemic either. So there, there is definitely a movement in fermented foods, which I support wholly. I think fermented foods are an excellent, excellent food source to support the gut microbiome. But why I think they're an important food source is not because they have live bugs in them, which most of them still do have live cultures in them. It's because that it's kind of a living food. And in the process, you know, I talked about that the gut bacteria are making all these metabolites, all these chemicals that go to the rest of the body. Well, your fermented food is laden with those chemicals because the bugs are in there fermenting, doing their fermented things. And if you were to do a mass spec analysis of the liquid fraction of kombucha, it would be thousands of chemicals in it. And, and we've actually done this analysis with, uh, actually UCLA did it as part of a, a project that I was involved in. And so to see what is in a bottle of kombucha blew my mind and convinced me that these fermented products are potentially, they all have, you know, it's, it's, Unregulated, we don't know how what the concentrations are. We don't, every food is made kind of wildly, some batch to batch variation, things like that. But what is it? the postbiotics is what we call them, the chemicals produced by the bugs have major bioactive effects, you know, that uh, we have only scratched the surface of. So fermented foods, awesome, take them. There's really no downside to taking fermented foods unless you have some functional GI issues sometimes. If you have IBS, you might be sensitive to fermented foods, but otherwise eat them. Pick your favorite fermented food of, you know, in your cuisine and just go for it. That is a paradigm shifter right there. It's not necessarily just the probiotics that is what we're focusing on. It's what they're making. Yeah. You know, these postbiotics which goes back to what you started with, you know, the things they're making in us for us mm -hmm. and what we can get from these fermented foods and beverages. Yeah. And also with the fermented food or like a vegetable, for example, we're getting a prebiotic kind of substrate mm -hmm. as well that yeah. could potentially be helpful for other microbes that are not in that food. Yeah, you're getting the whole thing, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. That's pretty cool. All right, speaking of cool, mm -hmm. what do you have going on right now? What are you interested in? What are you studying? at your lab, like what are some of the things that you're really excited about right now? Yeah, that, that's such a big question because there's, it's, it's hard for me to, because we have so many different diverse projects going on in the lab and they're all exciting to me at least. So we have studies that we initiate in our lab and then we have studies that our colleagues will initiate that we're collaborators on. And some, I'll share a little bit of both of those. So some projects that we initiated in the lab that are really personally interesting to me from a diet standpoint is going back to this concept of bugs can make all these chemicals, right? Can we 
leverage our microbiome to make chemicals that we want, right? And make chemicals we can use when we're not able to get them from the diet. And so we're really kind of at this particular moment focused on amino acids, essential amino acids, which your body doesn't make. You have to get it from the diet. But what if you are in a place, whether it's socioeconomically or you're part in part of a world where you don't have access to meat or, you know, high quality protein, vegetables, things like that. And so you have a deficiency. And this is especially prevalent in under sort of developed parts of the world where babies have kwashiorkor, which is sort of that distended belly. Look, it's a protein malnutrition. So there has been really compelling work in, in the microbiome field, like from Jeff Gordon, showing that he's created kind of a formulation, a gut microbiome supportive for diet to give these, these children that actually has less calories than the existing food, but is more gets them to gain weight faster because it supports the microbiome and makes them healthier faster. But the mechanism was not fully known. We have found that by feeding different fibers, and supporting the gut microbiome, you can actually coax the bugs into producing certain amino acids that the host can use. So if you take that proof of concept into, you know, states where you really, you know, parts of the world and so on, like I mentioned, you could do it cheap and you could do it effectively. And so protein malnutrition is just one area. There are other areas where you could be essential fatty acids. It could be things that just our body needs that we rely on diet for, but diet may not be available or sufficient. So let's use our microbes to make those things for us. So we're really interested in that concept. Another area is this concept about fat cells, bugs and fat cell interactions. So how could our bacteria actually be directly interacting with fat cells in a way that is causing fat expansion and be one of the underlying factors of obesity? Maybe, you know, so that's one thing we're looking at that is pretty exciting to us. So we've, those are studies we've initiated that we're kind of doubling down on right now at the moment. That's so cool. So you mentioned, obviously, the importance with these amino acids. And obviously, you know, we're a protein machine, mm -hmm. you know, pretty much when we're looking at each other, we're seeing proteins, right. some minerals sprinkled in there. But it's so important, not just for structure, but for running processes. Mm -hmm. Obviously, our mutual friend, Dr. Gabrielle mm -hmm. Lyon, protein queen, you know, yeah. she's really pushing that awareness into popular culture. But we don't often associate, like even when you, what you talked about in the beginning, fiber, we get that with the microbiome, but what about protein? Yeah. Is there any evidence here of like this being a necessity? So we know protein is probably, pro protein microbiome interactions is probably one of the most understudied dietary components, oddly enough, because there's such an interest in it. And we know that, and this is often pointed to as a a detrimental aspect of, of protein, which is why I think we need more research, but microbes can ferment amino acids in the, in the colon, and it can cause byproducts that can lead to inflammation. What we don't fully understand is how much you have to consume, how, you know, what the concentration has to be to have that effect, but we know microbes can ferment proteins and, and create chemicals that maybe would cause inflammation. Microbes need amino acids to carry out their functions. So at the same time, they need these amino acids. And if they don't get them from the diet, they will forage your gut mucus for them. Mm, and right, yeah. so, and that's what happens when you fast, that gut bugs will forage on your body if you don't feed them. 
And um, and so you need to give them a full repertoire of foods so that they don't do that to you. That much we know. But in terms of, you know, how how much pro, how much of a, the protein component of the diet is needed to support gut health, we actually don't know. I suspect, as I say, a, a diverse diet is important. That includes proteins. But I don't I can't point to many studies that have really looked at that direct relationship. Yeah. And uh, again, you just said the most important thing, which is the obvious thing. It's required to run processes for ourselves and for our microbes, mm -hmm. which we don't we still we're starting to, but we don't really respect our microbes like we should. And huge revelations like even the genes that our microbes are carrying, mm -hmm. you know, all this genetic information yeah. and how their genes interact as an epigenetic influence yeah. for our genes. And like, it, these things literally determine our, our health outcomes, expression yeah. of so much. Yeah. And, but if we're not providing the building blocks, right, to, to run processes, our bodies are amazing. And this is part of the reason I believe we're seeing all these epidemics of uh, chronic diseases. These are adaptations, mm -hmm. right? You yeah. know, if we talk about type two diabetes, for example, you know, this is a this is a condition, but we tend to think that this is like an end all be all scenario. But our bodies are adapting to run under unideal circumstances. Yeah. Right. It's just changing the way that it's functioning to keep us alive. Yeah. You know, but we see it as like this is a problem. This thing has happened to me when it's really kind of biological feedback. True enough, we can get to a place where you know some of these outpicturings are they don't seem to have a cause, but something I've been like trying to push into culture recently is like, even if we don't know the cause, it doesn't mean there isn't one, mm -hmm. you know, like causality is like, this is a basic tenet, you yeah. know, but when we don't know a thing, we'll just be like, oh, this is, um, you know, it quote just happens. Yeah. Right. But, and I also believe that our bodies generally, we are moving towards us. Like we, we're just kind of, we've evolved to have a state of health, you mm -hmm. know, but now we, we can believe that our bodies are es essentially out to get us, mm -hmm. right? And a peanut is, is like, <laughs> it's like a time bomb. I was just yeah. with my, my friend last night. I had no idea, you know, they were doing this. This is my first time going to a gala, uh -huh. you know? This is not where I don't come from these kind of circumstances. So it's just very interesting. They got the different courses they're bringing yeah. out, all the things. And there's a soup, right? It was wonderful soup, it was sweet potato and hot leek soup. And it was fantastic, it was great. And they sprinkle on some pepitas, some uh, pumpkin seeds. But my friend, his wife, right before they were about to sprinkle the pumpkin seeds, she was like, no, 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 don't put the pumpkin seeds. And then she was like, does, does it have pumpkin seeds in the mm -hmm. mixture? And I was like, what is going on? I've known them for years. Mm -hmm. And we've eaten together so much. And he's like, yeah, I have a bad allergy to pumpkin seeds. And I'm just like, what? How did you, how? I had no idea, Yeah. you know? And he's like, I didn't used to have it. And, but something happened. Yeah, interesting. Right? Mm -hmm. And, but we're seeing this more and more and more. We're having these unusual food allergies. A lot of times, funny enough, to nuts and seeds. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is there anything to that? You know, I, uh, I wish I had an answer for you. I don't, but I, I think adult, development of allergies is really interesting because allergies will tend to manifest pretty young. If you have them, yeah. they'll manifest pretty young. You all see cases where people will develop an allergy and then lose that allergy yeah, over time me. as well. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, had an, I had an egg allergy at one point and then I no longer did. And you can sometimes induce allergies by eating too much of a food and then your body's like no moss and then you got to give it a break and then you can eat it again. You know, lactose intolerance is a classic adult developed 
food allergy. But like with lactose intolerance, you can retitrate dairy back in slowly and get the enzyme working again. It requires a very strict kind of protocol, but you can do it. So it's not so much like in kids where it's very black and it tends to be pretty black and white, those allergies. The adult allergies tend to be a little gray, right? It's like sometimes this food, but it's like the categories are a little not well-defined. And also can turn on and turn off and come back. Yeah. And, you know, so why is that? I, I really don't know why that is. Is there a microbial cause? Maybe, maybe not. It could be something just, just triggering an immune response. Some people also will get allergies that don't manifest as puffy, you know, red redness that you require an EpiPen. It's not that kind of allergy. People I get. found out he has an EpiPen. Oh, I he had does? no idea. <laughs> All this time we spent together. Yeah, I mean, it can, I, yeah, I have no explanation for for those situations. Yeah. It's usually multi, multi-factorial. Yeah, facts, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, but I think the underlying thing here is, is it normal or natural for us to be like allergic to our environment and things in the environment sudden, so suddenly, like the rates have gone up so quickly. Yeah. There's something is awry here and I, you know this as well. And I know, I love it because you're just like, you know, we do, we're leaning towards it, but you know, you're always bringing it back to like what is provable yeah. right now. But we do know our microbiome influences pretty much everything about us. And we have the ability to influence our microbiome as well with the mm-hmm. decisions that we make. Yeah. yeah. So are there any last things, any recommendations that we can do either, you know, maybe things to avoid or right. things to add in or focus on so we can start to really cultivate a healthy microbiome. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say is I will always harp on antibiotic usage and say only take them if you have a, an infection, verifiable bacterial infection. And, you know, I, I kind of believed that it was commonly accepted. But I realize that it still isn't. You know, I think people have, feel comfort in having their stockpile of antibiotics at home that they'll just take as soon as they're feeling, and they'll self-diagnose and don't self-diagnose, get a verified culture, make sure it's a bacterial infection. Some things are viral infections. Antibiotics won't do anything for them, and you're just going to create resistance. And what I'll say is we don't have any new antibiotics left. And so everyone's taking all the antibiotics that we have. And when we have resistance to all of them, we're going to have COVID on a massive scale with bacteria. And that my prediction was always that bacteria is what's going to end human civilization is because we have no way to fight them. And that will happen through just chronically using antibiotics for every small thing. You go to the dentist, have a root canal, they give you prophylactic antibiotics. Don't. I always ask, do I have to take it? And they say, you don't have to take it. I say, well, I'm not going to take it. But ask the question, do I have to take this antibiotic before you take it? And if it's equivocal, don't do it. But obviously there are times to take it. And obviously you take it when that's necessary. But that, for me, like, that is the biggest thing. Just be, you know, skeptical about antibiotics when they're prescribed to you and ask the question. The other thing is now if we're talking about health, you know, as I talked about earlier, a diverse diet eat a diverse diet. That is really important. It's okay to do, you know, experiment with your diet, you know, and find things that you want to try for body composition or metabolic things. But I really, for gut health and gut microbiome support, specifically eat a diverse diet. Fiber is really important. 
inter- start introducing fermented foods into your diet. Those things have been proven to have a beneficial effect. And that's a good place to start. Awesome. This is so cool. And I'm just excited to hear like what's coming out of the researches you're doing right now. I'm especially interested in the interaction with bacteria and our fat cells. Mm-hmm. Like we could be cracking a, a serious code here. And um, you mentioned earlier, you know, potential study, somebody wants to come in and start to contribute yeah. to, you know, a, a carnivore versus a vegan, that, that kind of thing. Where can people follow you? Where can people get more information? Yeah. Where can people reach out? So I'm on Instagram. On Instagram, I try to post just sci- latest science articles that I think are cool and try to interpret them for, for the public, a microbiome related usually. Follow me on Instagram. You can send me a message on Instagram. I would love to get a cohort of like 25 carnivores, 25 vegans, people, you know, if you really document your diet, I want really solid food records and maybe doing a crossover. If anyone's interested in doing a crossover, it would be super cool. DM me. Let's get it going. What is your handle? Suzanne Defcoda. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, that's also, I post science stuff, but Instagram is really where I do more of my longer content. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming to hang out with us. This has been just so cool. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the work that you're doing. And of course, like not being the person who is getting told what to do. Right. And, you know, you have a couple of older siblings. So mm-hmm. I know it's a, it's a little rebellion out here for you to open your own lab, <laughs> yeah. which is really awesome because it's benefiting all of us. So thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Dr. Suzanne Devcota, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. Please share this out with your friends and family on social media. You can tag me. I'm at Sean Model and tag Dr. Dev Coda as well. And let her know what you thought about this episode. But most importantly, we got to get this education into more people's hands because this intimate connection with this invisible world and our health outcomes is something that is always with us, whether we understand it or not. But also, this is something we can do something about. We can do something to improve it, to support it. And to overall, of course, to support our health outcomes. So the microbiome, this information, the science on this is just going to continue to expand. But learning from people like Dr. Dev Koda, who's been in this field at the forefront of it and in her lab and doing this research, it is such a gift. And it's something that we didn't have access to just a few short decades ago. And so to have this information right at our fingertips is so powerful. So again, please share this out with your friends and family on social media or send directly from the podcast app that you're listening on. We've got some incredible masterclasses and incredible world-class guests coming your way very, very soon. So make sure to stay tuned. Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.